Hi, Jack. Hey, thanks for having me. Thanks for the invite. Uh, it's good to chat to you. Yeah, but uh, the first question is the hardest. What was your first computer? I can't, it was a Dell laptop that I got for Christmas. I, I cannot remember the, the model, but it was like a really thick, chunky one that my parents bought me that was secondhand. Um, and the main thing I remember being happy was that it could run Roller Coaster Tycoon 2, I think. Oh, yeah. Um, at that point and so I hadn't got into sort of programming at that point I was just happy that I could play the computer game that I always tried to play on my dad's PC uh, so yeah an old beat up Dell laptop of some sort um, okay with like an hour battery life you know that kind of thing yeah but Tycoon, Tycoon was uh, actually a Linux game right back then it ran on Linux I think I think it may have done yeah quite a lot of the games I think was it a Chris Sawyer game Rollercoaster Tycoon I, I think quite a lot of his games did run on Linux um, so yeah, quite okay. possibly. So when you started to do something else than play, than than gaming or playing on with your laptop. So I um, I played football um, here or soccer as as some people might say. Um, and we needed a website for like my team that I played in. So I would mm -hmm. have been thirteen or fourteen. And um, my dad actually volunteered to to build the website, having never built a website ever in his life. He was just interested by it. <laughs> uh, we, okay. we literally knew nothing about it. And, and we built the first version was dreadful. We were using, you know, we, we were literally complete novices and we were using Dreamweaver to like, you mm -hmm. know, WYSIWYG, drag and drop to mm -hmm. create divs and, and all that. But then over time, we started switching from that view into the code view of, of Dreamweaver and trying to figure out what was going on there. So we started learning HTML. Um, I remember we bought Rachel Andrews' CSS book, um, mm -hmm. which I sort of read cover to cover. And from there, I just kind of got really interested in it. Then I, I learned, uh, taught myself PHP and built kind of a really, really rubbish blog, like PHP, MySQL, mm -hmm. WordPress type thing, but obviously nowhere near as, as polished and, and good. Uh, and it just mm -hmm. kind of spiraled from there, really. And then I found that I really enjoyed it, um, found it rewarding. And that was when I made a decision to kind of study at a university and have been a developer ever since, really. Oh, so so um, you said you studied at the university or no? Yes, I did. Yes. So I, I studied computer science uh, oh, okay. at university. So, um, and I mean, you know, the from from CSS uh, book to, uh, to, to computer science uh, is a huge step, I would say. Uh, what was your, you know... Were you shocked, actually, <laughs> by the university? Or I wasn't too shocked because after the CSS, I taught myself kind of uh, PHP, did a fair amount of PHP and, mm, okay. and JavaScript mm. um, sort of before I'd gone to university. So um, I, I sort of knew, I, I knew a bit about programming kind of in the like, traditional kind of programming sense. Um, and so it was as expected. And, and by the time I went to university, I was also doing some like um, freelance web design development work for some people as, as well. So mm -hmm. and I had a rough idea what to expect. Um, some part of the course is was were, some part of the course was a, a challenge, particularly the kind of graphical side of things and um, 3D uh, gaming, that sort of thing. There were, there were a few courses on that as part of my degree and That really isn't for me. Like I just my head doesn't work in in that way. But the more typical computer science programming side, I was fairly comfortable with. Um, mm -hmm. By the time I went to university, I knew what sort of stuff it was going to be. So it seems to me like uh, it was recently. So when you finished the uh, university, uh, I left university nearly eight years ago. So oh, okay. Not that recent. Yeah. Yeah, not that recent, but uh, every year. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> that's that's true. Uh, that's true. Which programming languages you learned actually at the university? We did all sorts. We started with Python, 
mm-hmm. uh, at the beginning. That was sort of the the classic beginning programming language. It, it seems actually a lot of people I spoke to who did computer science at uni, at least here in the UK, all seem mm-hmm. to have done Python. And then there was a lot of Java. Mm-hmm. That was sort of the classic. Uh, and then there were a few kind of weird, um, well, not weird, but sort of niche languages. So we did a bit of Prolog which okay. is a really interesting language We you kind of describe and define like rules mm-hmm. and it figures out things based on those rules. Um, mm-hmm. Really interesting. Uh, we did a bit of like Lisp-based languages. Mm-hmm. Um, what else did we do? All sorts, really. But most of it came back to Java mm-hmm. uh, in the end. So um, your honest opinion. What's your opinion about Java? Uh, I haven't touched it since I left university. Okay. So I, I'm not too up to date with it. At the time... I found it a little bit um, wordy and verbose. Mm-hmm. I, rem- mm-hmm. I remember thinking that. However, since then, I've kind of gone all in on on TypeScript, uh, and I'm, I'm much more confident with sort of the syntax of types and TypeScript and Java look pretty similar in, yeah, in a lot of ways. Yeah, very similar. Mm-hmm. So I, I think if I were to use it now, I would find I would be more comfortable with it. But yeah, at the time, I remember it feeling very wordy. Um, mm-hmm. it, it was also the first time I'd really met a compiler, and okay. I remember getting very frustrated sometimes where I just refused to compile my code. Uh, and in hindsight, obviously, that was because I'd done something wrong and I had a type mismatch or, or something like that. But at the time, I just remember thinking, I just want to like get this running. I just want to yeah. do the do the assignment and, and hand it in. Uh, and I, I felt like I was fighting it a lot um, at the time. As I say, that's all eight plus years ago, so yeah. I'm not up to date yeah. on recent recent Java. I'm just interested because I'm Java developer all the time, so always interested okay. you know, what is the perspective from other developers. And um, okay, so after the university, what happened then? So you, so you became a front end developer? Yes, not immediately. So I joined a fairly small startup in in London um, that was about forty ish people, and okay. really that was really good because we're, they're at the stage where, as an engineer on that team, you, you had to do a little bit of everything really. So mm-hmm. I did a bit of front end, but I actually primarily was a back end developer. We were writing a lot of Ruby um, at the mm-hmm. time. And I really enjoyed that side of things. And then the the person who was really responsible for the front end, and uh, they they left, and there was no dedicated front end person. And obviously, I'd done a fair amount of, of front end stuff in in my time, uh, and so I just kind of slowly moved into it and just found that I really uh, enjoyed it. It was it was the right sort of place for me. I found it slightly more rewarding than the back end stuff personally. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so yeah, you did really uh, back end Ruby. So you did back end yes. Ruby back then. It was Rails. Yeah. Or- Mm-hmm. Uh, it was Rails, so pers- yeah. Yeah, the, 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 um, the Rails story is actually interesting because what I remember is, um, so I, I finished my university a little bit you know, uh, <laughs> earlier. And uh, after then, I, um, I, I did a lot of Java work. And around 2006, I would say, uh, the common perception was that uh, Java is uh, dead and Rails uh, would just take over. And what happened then is, in my opinion at least, is that Rails became less and less popular. And um, I, w- I would say the popularity of Java is the same. I wouldn't say it is not like it. It's just like it is. But uh, Rails, I don't hear about Rails anymore. It's like almost gone. Is it also your perception? or, or- I-, I feel like it's kind of just steady, at least from a sort of outsider's perspective who doesn't use Rails anymore. And so I don't proactively keep up to date. It, it doesn't... Mm-hmm. I think it had a big boom at the beginning i can still remember mm-hmm. watching that initial video that dhh did where he kind of built this blog in like 10 minutes mm-hmm. using mm-hmm. rails and mm-hmm. all the scaffolding and, and stuff mm-hmm. i remember thinking that's that's absolutely amazing and that, that's incredible um but yeah it, it seems to kind of just it's like a steady community now at least from from the outside mm-hmm. um i i really enjoyed it i think ruby is a nice language 
Um, and sometimes I, I would, I try and do a little bit of backend programming just in my spare time to keep uh, up to speed of it. I should probably try and write some Ruby soon. But, or Java, you know, yeah. uh, after, after the talk. Java, uh, yeah. Oh, Java, of course, that's just, just kidding. But um, yeah, absolutely. Uh, what surprised me, because uh, Ruby um, was, you know, to, uh, well, to my perception of Ruby, it was like a really beautiful and, and DSL-like language where you can, you know, craft nice code. And uh, what my perception is that actually Python is far more popular right now than, than Ruby, right? So it like actually took over. And, and you know Python, so if you compare Python with Ruby, what do you like more? Python or Ruby? So now your personal opinion about that. I, I like Ruby a lot more. Uh, okay, I, yeah. I have more Ruby experience than I do Python experience, so I'm, I'm probably biased for sure. Mm-hmm. But I, in my head, I've just always found Ruby easier to write. It, it um, The whole ecosystem around it seems nicer to me. Uh, sort mm-hmm. of Ruby gems seems like a nicer experience than, I've forgotten the name, the equivalent Python thing. A jungle. Um Jang- oh no, Django, and then the the thing that manages dependencies, like the sort of bundler, uh, Ruby's or bundler equivalent. Pip. Yeah, pip, pip, pip. That's it, pip. Mm-hmm. Uh, I so the previous place I worked had a sort of Python Django backend. I didn't really get involved with it, but I just felt like every time I had to touch that, I was fighting it more, and and that probably is because I don't have as much experience compared to Ruby. Mm-hmm. But just even if I if I were to load up the same same sort of application written in both languages like to me and the way maybe that i work and my head works i find ruby easier to follow and understand that's Mm -hmm. not to say it's it's perfect but for me i've always been a ruby over python person yeah this is um this is why it really surprises me that uh, in the cloud and so forth python becomes more and more popular and not ruby this is my big surprise but um, interesting, right? Um, maybe because you know Python comes with all these scientific libraries, which are used by the scientists a bit, bit more machine learning and so stuff, and and Ruby less so. Ruby was more more like a backend, you know, uh, how to call it web 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 language, right? So this yeah, I agree with that. Nice. So um, you became then a front end developer. So from Ruby backend to front end, what you did in the front end? So when I first sort of made that transition, we were working with Angular, uh, Angular JS, like version one, one or two, and one. So okay. not not the new one, yeah, the the old one, mm-hmm. as it were, uh, and we were building sort of dashboards and things on top of a, a JSON API, mm-hmm. uh, and that was fine. We were also starting to uh, that was around the time that ES modules were starting to exist, mm-hmm. and the first bundlers were starting to support them. So we were looking into that quite a lot as well. I remember being really excited that finally in JavaScript you could import things um, like yeah. like you could in Ruby and, and other languages that I'd used. So that was I remember being very very excited when we we were able to do that and we set up I don't think it was webpack it was a bundler before kind of webpack and that sort of set but when we got that working that was very exciting uh, and then after mm-hmm. that um that was just when react came out as well and we were building a new website kind of a standalone marketing site and we were doing react for that and actually server um, rendering why? react as well kind of why, right why, why you switched from angular to react we wanted, firstly, we wanted to try React because it was new and it seemed potentially, it seemed quite compelling uh, compared to Angular. Like it felt lighter weight and it the sort of component mm-hmm. model felt like a nice fit. Uh, we also, from the get-go with that website, we were immediately server-side rendering it as well, which React could do out, out the box. Uh, I don't remember mm-hmm. if Angular could or not. Uh, and it was also a website that we were going to maintain, but we needed people without low we need non-engineers had to be able to say update uh, text on a particular mm-hmm. page or add a new page 
And so we felt that React with its JSX could be a good option there because the, the people in sort of the marketing and whoever, they, they had knew enough HTML to, to edit a web page. So we felt mm-hmm. that a little server-side rendered React app with what to them looks like HTML that they could go and update uh, would, would work quite well. Uh, and it, it did, yeah, it, it went fairly well. What I remember back then, it was a huge, uh, it was very controversial, the JSX and React, because um, everyone said, okay, there's now the, the, the logic and the presentation are not strictly separated. And this is why it is really hard to maintain. And I just tried React back then, and I really like it. So, I mean, regardless of what the theory says, it is uh, perfectly viable, you know, to have everything in one place. And, um, and, uh, and you know, the Java developers, I'm one, they were diverse because they told you, okay, you cannot do this. I would like to have strictly separated template from the Java logic. But we had it for years in Java. There is an, another framework called JSF, so it was strictly separated. The problem with the separation always is you have to look in two places, right? If you change something in the template, you have to keep your code in sync, which is uh, maybe... It is no more the 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 best practice, but it's not very productive. So I really liked the um, uh, uh, React experience from the beginning. Actually, what I didn't like at the beginning, they had a really a strange custom syntax. So you could write, you know, like DSL-like language, the all the components. I, I ignored that, but as as they um, introduced the preprocessor, I think where you could just use you no know, HTML. I think it looks like uh, lit HTML right now. You know, you, you could have you know like yeah. like a directive. And then write the code. This 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 worked really really well. And uh, regarding Angular One, another question because Angular One, uh, uh, I really like Angular One because it was very similar to Java. So there's like you no know, request. You can put stuff on the request and render the requests in, in in the view. So it was actually a really nice framework. And then Angular Two came out, and I say okay, forget it. I mean uh, this is like co- complete different experience. So this is nothing to do with Angular One. And then uh, I think all projects from then were Angular in my, my, my uh, in my world and later web components, but um, Angular. And and what is your opinion, Angular One versus Angular Two? So I mean, you know, just uh, of course it's just opinion. Yeah, I'm I'm not super familiar with. Ang- I haven't used Angular Two. I think okay. The benefit of hindsight from the outside, I would have considered renaming it entirely. I think yeah, that caused a lot of confusion. I don't know. It's Angular and Angular JS. I think. Mm-hmm. maybe a, just a different name just being really up front of yeah. like, nope we're done with that now we've learned from it uh, we'll maintain it for a year and, and then that's it um it seems to have worked out in the long run it, it seemed again from very much from the outside just from like twitter and, and things angular seems to be doing well it, it it has a fairly solid uh community but behind it and there are people who absolutely swear by it and and love working in it yeah 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 of so course I, I think it's gone especially well now. java developers Java yeah. developers love it. So whatever I say, you know, uh, about React Web Component, no, no, Angular is the way to go. So this is, I'm, I'm in more dangerous place than you are because uh, <laughs> my, this is what I wanted to ask you because it seems to me like Angular is only popular in Java space or .NET space by developers, by enterprise developers. If I look outside, there's basically no Angular. So I, I am not aware of any young, fresh project who decides to use Angular. This is at least my perception. Yeah, um, I don't know. I don't know any either, but that that may just be that I've missed them. Yeah, but, sure. Um, yeah, I, I would say I, it seems. I, I think the Angular to me, the Angular. If you pick Angular, you're you're kind of going all in on Angular and and everything it yeah. gives you out the box. And I can see the appeal of that. I can see the appeal of picking mm-hmm. one thing that gives you everything, like your entire toolbox. 
uh, and there are a lot of pros to that. And I can easily picture if you're a big company, lots of people who are familiar with Java, my understanding is Angular in, in some ways kind of fits that mental model. Uh, exactly. I, I can really see the appeal. Um, but I think if you don't have that kind of affiliation with something like Java, where you have some of that sort of uh, familiarity, I, to me, it's not it's not something I would personally reach for um, on a yeah. project. I find it a little bit heavy and, and overwhelming myself. So um, long story short, you, you, you were happy with React, right? Because you, yes. you moved from Angular 1 to React, you tried it out and you liked that. So this is also my um, uh, experience. And I also actually... I um, suggested React to um, to some of my clients or smaller companies, and they are so happy with React that if I know mention web components, whatever, say no, 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 it works. Just let, leave me alone. You know, it works perfectly. So, um, so they are really uh, happy about React. Uh, the only problem I have with oh, the only problem uh, the the Angular Next or Angular Two Plus, uh, whatever you call it, is it comes with lots of dependencies. And uh, you have maintained the dependencies all the time because uh, you know the, the the Angular uses the uh, semantic versioning, so they are constantly pushing releases. And uh, what do you have to do? You have to keep you know the pace. So you have to you know to constantly update the entire code base or not update the code base. You have to update the dependencies. And uh, in enterprise projects, it can be challenging because sometimes you know the enterprise project is done and and there is done no no like uh, um, the, the the updates are not planned. If you wait too long, yeah, you get you know the security problems with the dependencies and uh, you know the pipeline stops because it's, it was not no more updated so this is what i what i see this is why i try to avoid you know frameworks with too many dependencies but this is my java point of view this is also what i do yeah. in java all the time you know yeah it, okay. it, that has become a big part of my strategy broadly is avoiding dependencies or avoiding is maybe too strong but keeping the set of dependencies that you need to update as, as mm-hmm. few as as possible yeah, it's just really crazy because you come from completely different background, and um, my background is a- even worse than Java. So um, I don't know whether you heard about such a thing like J2E or Java E. So this is what I actually did a lot, and I still like it. And the interesting part is, um, it is said you know it is a heavyweight or whatever. But the long story short is, we didn't have any dependencies. So the, the only dependencies we had was like the dependency to the API to the application server, and then we could implement our business logic. And I've I did uh, more front end work. I expected the same, right? I would say, okay, where is my, you know, yeah. API, my browser API, and I would like to code against the browser API, and instead I have to fiddle with lots of JavaScript dependencies and and updates and builds and compiles. It's like this is like crazy world. Why? What's happening here? Everyone says, you know, how beautiful JavaScript is, is lightweight, and and if you compare it to Java, it is completely inefficient and actually unproductive. Um, a different story was React actually, because and also what I liked about React, to my knowledge. As long as I work with React, there are no incompatible changes. So uh, we could update the dependencies, and it worked surprisingly well. So at least my experience. Have you encountered any problems with breaking changes? Not problems. Off the top of my head, I think there have been one or two. I think the advantage you have with React is because, obviously, Facebook use it extensively internally, is they really feel the pain of a breaking change because they have to make that change across all the things mm-hmm. that they have. Mm-hmm. So uh, what well, I think they've been very good at a breaking change happening over sort of 12, 24 months where you get deprecation warnings for a long time. And then only then after a very long period does do things actually get kind of removed. But also I think they often will release a code mod, like a, a tool you can run against your source code to transform it into the new thing that, that is supported. So I think mm-hmm. they handle that fairly well. Um, but but yeah, I, I would have said that broadly, 
when I was working with React, I remember being able nearly always to just keep upgrading yeah. and never really hit too many big issues, like the odd rename or something, but nothing major that caused problems. Maybe the biggest one was the React hooks, which was re- uh, recently added, um, which, uh, which is not a breaking change, it's a different philosophy, right? Uh, um, the early React was class-based and the React yeah. hook is uh, like function-based. You used React hooks or? Yes, yeah, I did. Yeah, so when when they came out, I was in the middle of, of my previous uh, job where we were sort of a React, fairly mm-hmm. full-on React front end. So mm-hmm. yeah, we made the decision to embrace hooks for all new okay, code. So but as, as you said, all our old stuff made kept working, no problems. Yeah. So very briefly to listeners, what what are React hooks? And um, yeah, first, can you briefly explain it? What it is? Yeah, so so when React released hooks, the idea was you could you were able to rather than define a React component as a JavaScript class with various methods on, you could instead define a React component as, as literally a, a function that returned mm-hmm. some uh, JSX in in React mm-hmm. land. So whereas in the class based system you had these methods you could define such as component did mount I think was one mm-hmm. which would yeah, automatically yeah. get called for you when React rendered your component into the page. Uh, th- those are gone in this this function world. So instead, what we have are, are hooks. So the equivalent would be one called use effect. And, and the way I think about this is it's it's like a side effect of your component rendering. It's like when my component renders, I need to run a thing, and that mm-hmm. thing would be called an effect. And mm-hmm. so what you have inside this React function is you call these hooks like use effect, pass in a function, and React will call that function for you when your component gets uh, rendered or, or re-rendered. The, yeah. the complication mm-hmm. with hooks is that you might want that function to only run sometimes or when a particular value changes or only on the first render or only just before a component is removed or, or any of these kind of situations. So you can then specify to use effect uh, the dependencies that should trigger a rerun. Uh, mm-hmm. So I, I go back and forth on this. I think I've leaned more towards the side of hooks actually being, they give you more chance to shoot yourself in the foot because it mm-hmm. can be easy to write a hook that runs far too often uh, and and can cause confusion, um, but broadly, I I liked them when they were introduced. Having used them fairly extensively, I I'm really on the fence as to if they are superior to the class based approach. I think often the code looks neater, but I think it can be more confusing too. Okay, so this was this was my my next question. So um, if they came out, the hooks they were announced, and you look at the code, you like the code immediately, or you said, okay, I would like to keep the classes going. I, I think I liked it. I, I leant towards thinking, yeah, I would, or put it another way, when it came out, I immediately the next week kind of we upgraded and I thought, right, I'm going to build a component using hooks now mm-hmm. to, to get a feel for it. Like I was excited to try them out. I And I think for basic components, they, they work well. And there were downsides to the class-based system. You know, if you if you had some code that had to run with a component mounted and some that ran when it got removed, that that code that was related had to be in two separate methods, one in the component did mount and one in the component will unmount call. Mm-hmm. So you had related code separate across your, your class. If you have that as a hook, you can do that all in one uh, effect because you have the code that runs and then you can return a function that gets run when it gets cleaned up. Mm-hmm. So th- there were pros and cons. In my opinion, the issue with hooks is because now you've got this function component that's running every single time your component gets updated the entire function reruns that's um that's confusing and it 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 doesn't oh and it doesn't really work properly because um what happens is you just get like stuck in this messy world where you have 
hooks mm-hmm. trying to rerun all the time and, and it can get lost. Mm-hmm. And then because you've got things rerunning, you then have things like um, use callback or use memo or these other hooks that were introduced to try and help you maintain state across these re-renders when your entire function is, is running every time. And in, my head gets get a bit flustered at that point. I, I sometimes struggle to figure out exactly mm-hmm. what I'm doing in that world. And so to me, I'm not a huge fan now. <laughs> I, I um, What I use in the class-based approach back then is um, if I had multiple methods, uh, you know, the callbacks methods, component did mount and component mount and whatever, mm. um, I just uh, called another private methods um, or I, there are no private methods in Java developer, um, uh, methods inside the class. And so I could share the code. So this was my approach, and this was actually yeah. understandable. I would say it was uh, easy to grasp. Um, and I look at the hooks. I got, uh, I got the idea. It, I found them interesting. What I, what I, what I thought is dirty at the beginning. But again, I'm Java developers. That you know, per convention, you are returning an array, and you have to know that the first you know slot is something, and the second is another thing. But it seems like you know the JavaScript community, no one complained about that. So okay, this is actually strange because in Java, if someone will do this. We would immediately get, you know, complaints. What you are doing is like crazy. But it seems like this pattern is common, right? Yeah, I, I think so. I think I think everyone got excited by them. And I think I think also the JavaScript community, so much has been changing over the recent few years. Like, there's been a, a really serious pace of innovation, even from all the way back to ES modules happening and then ES 2015 with mm-hmm. classes and, and other stuff added. And then mm-hmm. more, and then all these various frameworks, your Angulars, your Views, your Reacts, your whatevers. Mm-hmm. And so I think the JavaScript community, potentially more than others, is kind of open to seeing like wacky new ideas that that maybe other communities that are more mature and, and stable mm-hmm. and, and settled maybe would be a harder sell to those. So okay. for me, I think that enables this experimentation. And, you know, and clearly as well, I think with React... I said, you know, it's Facebook behind it. You know, they've got a lot going on. There are reasons and motivations for them bringing hooks in. Like they, I trust that they wouldn't have, they didn't do it just to, just to make it different. You know, there, there will have been good motivations behind it. And so I think sometimes that also enables people to be like, okay, well, this is maybe slightly different, but we're, we're willing to, to give it a go. I think the reason for webhooks was that they are able to lazy load stuff afterwards, right? You have more, more control what is loaded. This was, I think, the, the, the motivation behind the scenes, as I remember. Yeah, I think that would make sense, um, I think. But yeah, I, I don't know. I'd have to go back. Yeah, but um, yeah, exactly. So uh, you, you changed the companies, right? So this is what happened so after your React journey. You changed the companies to where? Yeah, so I'm, I'm at Google now and I've been here for uh, two, two and a bit years now wow okay um, so and what are you I, doing? I was doing react before and now now i work on the chrome dev tools team so mm-hmm. um most developers have come across it once or twice the you know inspect element and all that uh currently i i lead the performance stuff so the dev tools performance panel there's a new panel wow. coming called performance insights uh mm-hmm. and and kind of so i've got heavy focus currently on on uh web performance and helping helping developers figure out how to make their sites um faster better nicer experience for their users i didn't you know about that so this is actually uh crazy so what you are doing actually is a, you have a huge impact right now right because whatever you're doing it's going to be shipped you know to lots of lots of clients yeah that's the plan yeah yeah um, <laughs> and yeah so we've we've worked on this insights panel which i think launched in chrome as we record this literally yesterday in in mm-hmm. one zero two which is the idea here being that the old performance panel 
as old performance panel, the current performance panel, um, has all the data you need, but it's very hard to break down. Whereas the insights panel, you, you record your website and we try and pull out the most useful bits to you. So yeah, it's one of the things that appealed to me about working on, on DevTools is the ability to hopefully have a really positive impact on developers to help them mm -hmm. uh, fix issues, improve their website, which ultimately should lead to, you know, whatever they're building being more successful because their website provides a nicer experience. And I feel very lucky to work on something where hopefully we can have a positive impact in that way. And the interesting part is, if you, I always know, if you, if you see a browser, Chrome, I would suspect, you know, the entire browser is written in C and or in Go or in Rust or whatever. But it seems like that uh, you are actually using web frameworks to implement, you know, the components in the browser itself, right? Yeah. So Chrome itself is is C, but Chrome DevTools is a front-end application that gets run within mm -hmm. that. There's a few bindings to talk to the C stuff. But yeah, um, DevTools is, is a web application. Theoretically, you could run it in a browser, you know, not attached to Chrome. Whether that would actually mm -hmm. work in practice, I don't know. But it is it is all HTML, CSS, and JavaScript, or in our case, TypeScript, but JavaScript, effectively. Uh, so yes, mm -hmm. we do build it primarily with mm -hmm. web components. Exactly. And uh, so what you did, you actually moved or moved. You start started with web components without React, right? This was your your idea right now. Yeah. So see, DevTools is very old and very big. So uh, that you know, we've got we've got UI code that was written 15 years ago. So mm -hmm. then it's all very much there's a bespoke widget system in DevTools that was built way before any frameworks or components were floating around. Were they still now... JavaScript, the old widgets? Yeah, all JavaScript, okay. yeah. Okay. And which um, framework was it back then? Uh, own framework or...? Uh, completely custom, just DevTools, okay. his own okay. thing. Okay. Uh, and yeah, so now we're... we And it's working. If you use DevTools, you've used it, obviously, and, and it all works fine, but we that sort of feels a bit outdated for this new component-based sort of um, mm -hmm. place that we're at now as, as a community. So yes, we now build all new UI using uh, web components uh, with a little sprinkle of uh, lit HTML on top, which is a very small mm -hmm. library to help with re-rendering efficiently. Mm -hmm. Above than that, it's, it's all native, native JavaScript web components without much on top. And do you have any state management, like, you know, uh, frameworks like Redux or similar where, you know, the changes just make re-render the HTML part or how you deal with this? Uh, we don't know. So we, um, well, we, we kind of have, we have like a whole thing called the SDK, which is the part that talks to the Chrome backend. And it's the part mm -hmm. where we ask it, okay, um, what styles are applied to this element? Things like that that you you need to be able to show in in DevTools. So there's data there, but but no, we then we would listen in a particular component. We would listen to events and trigger a re-render when data changes. So it's uh, much more. There's a little bit of boilerplate involved, and I would mm -hmm. say it's it's less quote unquote magical than other frameworks mm -hmm. where you just set some data and it magically knows what to update. Often we will say, okay, if this thing has changed, re-render. Mm -hmm. There are pros and cons to that. I think we probably write slightly more code. However, what I, I've come to really like about that approach is that I can always track down why something was re-rendered because nothing will ever magically yeah. re-render without me yeah. asking it to. Yeah, And that's the big benefit. It's interesting because um, what I'm doing, so um, I, I actually stopped using React at the, the class-based approach and then uh, clients you know, ask me, what do we do in the front end? And uh, 
with my Java background, I took a look, you know, and the use the platform movement is actually, this is exactly reflects my Java ideas. And so what we can do and I find web components. So the problem with web components is a problem. They are great custom elements, but there is nothing what they can render. And I, at that time, Polymer framework was big, but it was a little bit chatty. I didn't like that because uh, you had to do, actually to write a lot of code to, 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 to do something. It was also too much magic. But then what uh, the, 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 the reminder of uh, Polymer is actually lit HTML, right? So the, the lit HTML renderer is actually, um, uh, it looks like JSX and React, I would say, is similar. And, and, and what I like about that, that the HTML is basically a JavaScript function. This is a, how it's called, tagged template, I think. So um, yeah. on steroids, I would say. And um, what lit HTML does for me it uh, calculates the diffs. So if I re-render the entire lit HTML, it knows exactly what changed, which is fine for me, for my project. So what what, what I'm doing doing is actually the following. This, uh, my project, an enterprise project, I would say, is a little bit complete different story to yours. But um, we are uh, the uh, the view is talking to a to a to a to a set of JavaScript functions. We call it control, and it talks to the backend. It's just um, everything is asynchronous and void, so there is no return values. And then uh, you know with fetch, standard fetch, so the results coming back, and they are uh, modifying the uh, Redux uh, state. So we have the very simple Redux state, and the Redux state just calls re-render everywhere. And because lit HTML knows what changed, it is fast enough for enterprise project and very simple. So we have like you know fully asynchronous um, uh, pipeline. The developers are using uh, custom elements. They write you know HTML whatever they like, and we have no dependencies except lit HTML. And we use rollup for build, so we don't have any transpiling. It's very simple. What we we for <laughs> I have to admit. For uh, intranet enterprise projects, we don't even bundle. So you know, we, we, we zip everything and we just use straight ES6. With Visual Studio Code, we get TypeScript behind the scenes. So you know, the code completion is good enough. So we don't even have any yeah. um, transpilation. And, and, um, and it works surprisingly well. Actually, Java developers really like it and they are surprised that uh, something like this is not a standard. And I'm also surprised if I show this somewhere, the first question I get why are you not using any framework? You know, I would say, okay, but if this is the browser API, why I should to use something different? I mean, this is what the browser does anyway. And if you use a framework, the framework will have to talk to exactly the same browser API anyway. So it's not like they use something magical and go outside. No, they have to talk to the DOM and they have to use the fetch at the end of the day because there's no other way around. So what I what I see in JavaScript world, like... Uh, you have to justify yourself why you're not using a framework, which is really strange, right? Yeah, um, I, I completely agree. I mean, obviously, I'm, I'm equally uh, biased because of what I do currently. But I, I think, so I, I wrote a blog post recently on this this subject talking about why, I, you know, for various side projects and, and obviously at work, we, we don't use React. And, I, and I've been, when I joined the DevTools team, I knew we weren't going to be using React. And I was a little bit concerned because I'd been using React for five six years at a couple of mm -hmm. prior jobs mm -hmm. and i wasn't sure how i would adapt to that but actually i would you know there are frustrations of, of course but broadly i've been pleasantly surprised by um the web and the the platform abilities now relative to where we were a few years yeah. ago now i'm also fortunate that i work on on a chrome thing so i only have to worry about things being supported in chrome i appreciate um some of the things that we use are only supported currently in, in Chrome. But I, I think the web has come a long way. And I think there was justifiable reasons 
seven, eight years ago, maybe even five, to, to reach for a framework. But now, mm-hmm. especially with things like lit HTML, you can actually get a lot, a lot further than you used to be able to with components and also not feel like things are breaking down. Like it feels like a very robust system that, that's mm-hmm. in place. I think the challenge is getting people to try it. I'm, I'm not here to say that everyone should ditch React immediately, and I don't think necessarily that that's the right move for, for everyone. But yeah, I have the same. Get so many replies to this this blog post. Like, oh, how come you're not using React? So no, but how have we got to the point where the default state is to mm-hmm. reach for this framework? And it's not. I'm not even picking on React. You can replace React here with any of the equivalents. Um, and I, I think there's a lot to be said to just trying trying out components first or, or web components before reaching mm-hmm. for something. I think there needs to be a high bar to justifying the. Yeah. the extra addition of, of a framework like React, in my opinion. So the, the limitation to my approach are clear because uh, my uh, state management is simple. But uh, the lit HTML re-rendering, if you have uh, lots of changes, is still too slow. So but it works for enterprise applications, but if I would have, you know, I don't know, hundreds of bindings per page, it you will maybe see you know, that it renders too slow. But if you would use React Fiber, for instance... It is a way faster than my approach. So one approach would be, you know, if you have lots of moving parts or dashboard or whatever, then React, React and Fiverr will be more res- responsive than my approach with lit HTML. But uh, what I find interesting in your approach is um, the only difference between our architectures is that um, in my case, I have the Redux store. And what you have, it seems like you have like a, a event listener uh, layer, which listens to events from, from the Chrome uh, browser, and and calls you know the uh, the updates on LitHTML. You have like an adapter layer, right? This is the main difference between our approaches. Yeah, that that's broadly it. But but that happens on a component level. So um, ah, okay. a component can listen out to when something in the CSS model changes for a particular element and and be notified about that. Um, and and then what if if a component is given some data, it will just be defined as like a setter. And then when mm-hmm. we get some new data, if it's different to the old data, we'll just trigger a render. Um, and we've only had one instance where Lit was struggling to re-render, and that was in what we call the data grid, which is effectively a fancy HTML table, table yeah. you know, with mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. sorting and, and filtering, all that kind of classic stuff. Uh, because some of the tables get really big, and we, mm-hmm. we have a thing called the protocol monitor, which is actually you can see all the messages that the back end is sending to the front end or vice versa. And that can get rapidly updated a lot. Um, mm-hmm. Not many people use it. If, if you're building a website, you've no need to ever use this. And Lit was really struggling because we were ending up with tables with th- tens of thousands of rows. And not mm-hmm. just Lit was struggling, the browser was struggling just to keep this thing up to mm-hmm. date. So there we ended up having to implement sort of virtualization. So we we actually only render the rows that are visible. All the other rows are never rendered into the DOM. And as you scroll, mm-hmm. we update mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. set of rows we, we render. But touch wood, other than that, we haven't had any big performance issues um, or pages that have needed additional work to re-render efficiently. Lit is very good at that. And because it uses tag templates, all the all the HTML that isn't inside like a dynamic interpolated part, Lit knows will never change because it's static. So it can do some quite smart stuff. Um, and so far, we haven't hit upon um, too many issues with that. What's nice is we talked a lot about um, internally about the inversion of control and, and what's nice about web components is you're not handing off control to your framework and so in react or anything else you you change some data react will decide if it needs to re-render or not 
with mm-hmm. with our approach and, and lit we we decide when to re-render mm-hmm. and what that means is if you've got a particular case where you need to do something different you are able to do that because you've kept control so you can say actually in this time we're not going to call lit re-render whatever because it's inefficient let's say we're going to do this special custom thing for this one-off component and so i think keeping control which you do with components and, and custom elements is a real big real big win and something that more people should think about i think what i also did um, in my project was if you go uh, with um so if you render the component by yourself you can provide some nice console logging so uh, what we did how it's called console begin and end right so you can have your own hierarchical view in the uh, yeah. not begin and end you know uh, you can name you know the outputs and if we did it in the uh, in the rendering part so i saw exactly you know uh, this component rendered this component you see the entire tree how it rendered how fast and this was trivial it was like maybe yeah. 20 lines of code we only wrapped you know every method which rendered with uh, with uh, start and, and and end and we provided the name this is a built-in functionality of console.log and, um, and, 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 and this was basically it. And, and we saw exactly now what happens behind the scenes and you can de- debug it also very easily. But um, your conversation is actually great. I didn't knew that actually you are working that deep with Chrome because I can tell actually my clients, lit HTML, HTML will basically cannot die anymore because it's a part of the Chrome experience, right? <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, it's baked into DevTools. It's one of the very few dependencies we have. Um, mm-hmm. We, we really don't have many at all that get shipped as part of the bundled dev tools. Mm-hmm. And, yet, and yet what we also do with the, the reason we say are happy depending on something like LitHTML is firstly because the browser doesn't provide anything equivalent to that. But secondly, mm-hmm. because let's say suddenly LitHTML disappears. It is mm-hmm. a small dependency. There will be alternatives that do what it does that will exist. Equally, mm-hmm. we could fork LitHTML and maintain it ourselves if we really yeah. needed to. That, that's not what I mm-hmm. want to do, but we, we could. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I always think about if we were having this discussion five, maybe not five, ten years ago, we'd be talking probably about like, was it Backbone.js and Knockout.js yeah. and all these things that were really good at their time but are not, uh, not active now. Mm-hmm. And so what we as a responsibility to whoever is maintaining dev tools in 10, 15 years, I don't really want to burden those people with um, picking, let's say a framework like react where hypothetically in 10 years, it might not be actually being developed, worked on, and we might be leaving a huge thing that this future team have to um, maintain and deal with. Whereas if we leave them a thing with just lit HTML is the only bit that is out of date. And um, that, that's a much healthier place to be in. It's exactly the same thinking enterprise projects because, you know, they, they are yeah. done and they are just in maintenance mode and no one cares about the dependencies. And if you forget the dependencies, they will bite you in one point of time. It's actually, it's funny. So you have exactly the same problems I have, you know, in my world with uh, in, in enterprise um, uh, development. So about React, what's, one question I always ask myself is, uh, I mean, Facebook uses React for a reason, but uh, they also see that you know the, the 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 platform becomes more and more capable, and in one point of time, also Facebook has to recognize that actually, if they will you know don't use React, uh, and they will just write custom uh, ES6 and LitHTML or whatever replacement is, because at the end of the day, LitHTML are actually two functions, right? HTML and render. There are two two functions we can very easily write, but uh, you cannot write it easily by yourself, but you could. This is not like you know a mission impossible. And uh, in one point of time, maybe Facebook comes to the, to the conclusion, 
now new applications are going to be to be to to be written in vanilla web i mean this is very viable you know uh, uh idea and then react could be in trouble in a few years just in my thinking and this is right this is what i also try you know because okay facebook invests a lot but you know the facebook engineers are not like you know they are using react for a reason but for now it solves a problem but in one point of time, you know, the browsers get more and more capable or the mobile devices get more and more capable and there is no more reason for a framework. And, and then is the question, what happens then? Because it's always interesting what happens if the main contributor to our open source framework fades away. And this really interests me how, how realistic this is. In one point of time, in my experience, it has to happen, right? Yeah, I, I could be agreeing. It's really the first question I would ask myself or we ask is when we are considering depending on something is what is the worst case scenario for us mm -hmm. and the worst case for any front end dependency is it disappears. It stops being maintained just mm -hmm. one day out of, out of the blue. And I think, you know, you never, I have no insight into what Facebook's plans are at all, but you could reasonably suggest that it, it wouldn't be outrageous to suggest in five years time that they've moved beyond it or they've, they've, changed it substantially so that people running react now will have to do a huge upgrade job to move mm -hmm. to keep up to date and they may not be able to and, and then what happens then and you can swap react here i don't want to pick on on them specifically because it's the same theoretical story for any of the big frameworks yeah. um yeah. at all so i'm just i think i'm just extra wary of sort of choosing a, a horse and, and sort of building everything on top of it and as I said, that's what's so nice about lit HTML or, or using dependencies of, of that sort of size and, and stature is it's a small dependency in our code base to one small job. If it disappears, we can maintain our fork. We can replace it with an alternative. Worst case, as you said, we could build it ourselves if we really needed yeah. to. Um, and so that to me feels like a much more maintainable, healthy, long-term uh, approach. But then also... If you're building a project and you know it's only going to be around for a year and then you'll leave it, is React a bad choice? Maybe, maybe not. But I think mm -hmm. the, the sort of, it sounds like particularly for both of us, the kind of software we work on, it's got a bigger lifespan than maybe yeah. others, and so therefore yeah. that is maybe top of mind where it's not always for everyone. But I, I think it should be um, higher on the list of things front end engineers think about than it is. Mm -hmm. Do you, are you using any bundlers for for that or? What's your, you know, bundling and uh, transpilation story? Yeah, so uh, everything runs through TypeScript and we use a sort of Chrome or Chromium open source specific thing called Ninja um, to Ninja, do the, okay. the building. Um, and we do then, when we bundle it, we use Rollup as as well to, to bundle yeah. things down into one. Exactly file. what I use Rollup roll as well. What, what does the Ninja does? What, what is it? What is actually the responsibility of Ninja? So Ninja, we... Ninja is like a generic build tool where you tell it all your inputs and you tell it what outputs you're expecting. Okay. And it figures out, and you, you tell it like the dependencies and the relationship between all these things. And it figures out for a given file change, all the files that need to be recompiled. Um, so you, it's a little bit more work than say a Webpack because you have to give it every single file that exists and tell it about mm -hmm. all the relationships. Like Ninja won't figure that out from your javascript code ninja isn't javascript specific it's very generic so okay. we built a uh integration a, a typescript ninja integration um mm -hmm. to enable us to to use the two but it's effectively just a build tool designed to build like the the number of files that we have that potentially a 
tool like Webpack would be less capable of doing purely because DevTools is is really big. Um, yeah. And, and there are a lot of similarities between Ninja and the thing Google uses internally on its closed source um, code to build to. So it kind of mm-hmm. keeps us slightly in line with the rest of the company too. And I assume then that the rollup is pretty basic, right? In your case. I mean, if you're using good HTML and, and, and TypeScript, it's just a transpile. And then maybe you have, you know, the how it's called the... Um, uh, transfer and the uh, conversion of ES modules to uh, that you know makes the ES. I forgot the plugin, uh, the uh, module resolver, whatever the name is. Where uh, um, it, no, we don't we don't have that um, okay. either. So we we if we import lit HTML into our code, we import the full path um, in, yeah. and um, so we don't rely on any of the node resolution stuff in our front end build. So, so yeah, exactly so TypeScript yeah. takes mm-hmm. every file and spits it out as JavaScript. Rollup takes all those JavaScript files and just merges them, uh, rolls them up, uh, and that that's it. This is exactly what I'm doing as well. So I'm using also the you know the path so dot slash or whatever import. So I'm we are not using the how oh, it's called the logical or the the node uh, modules. We use the standard modules. Yeah. But Chrome is going to or already supports the um, how it's called. You know you could actually specify in the browser how the imports are resolved. Right, there's new spec. Uh, the import is, maps. Import maps, ex- import. exactly. Yeah. So it's already supported by by uh, Chrome, right? Yeah, I think so. Don't quote me on that. I don't know if it's it behind be. a flag or it's in stable Chrome. I think it may I well be stable now. It is stable, and I um, didn't think that the Firefox also supports it already. So uh, Yeah, qu- quite possibly. Um, I, I would have to double-check, but I think so. Um, yeah, mm-hmm. we haven't actually used it yet, but it's definitely something that we've been keeping an eye on. Um, mm-hmm. And probably will at some point like I, I like the idea of being able to replace all the links to like dot dot slash front end slash mm-hmm. third party slash lit html blah 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 i like the mm-hmm. idea of being able to replace that with lit html and not having to worry about paths because we do end up with some very long path imports um but equally it's not really a, an issue that's really slowing us down too much so when we're, yeah. we're not kind of jumping at it yet but i do really like import maps as an idea and i think mm-hmm. developers are so used to be able to say import foo from lit html yep. or even import from react and it just work so i like the fact that we'll be able to do something similar um in the yep. browser because right now the only reason i'm sometimes have to use the bundler is exactly the import because it's uh, not yep. cannot be understood by the browser so i need the and the, the plugin what i forgot actually roll up which translates the the uh, the name to a path this is what happens behind yep. the scenes and then it works uh, directly in browser so what are you using in the, for development? Browser sync or something like this or or, an, or a Python web server or, or um so most of the time we I just run dev run Chrome and, and there's a flag you can pass it to give it a custom DevTools location. And so oh. we, we bundle DevTools and we run Chrome with dash dash custom DevTools front end, I think, and just a folder that's being is the output and that will work. Um if I'm working on just one single component, we've also got it's not quite. Have you come across Storybook? I think it's Storybook. It's yeah, kind of like yeah, the Storybook, yeah. component doc thing. So we have a, a not as um, sophisticated or complete version, but we have a thing like Storybook for web components that we have. So if I'm working on one component and I don't need the whole of DevTools to work on it, I can just load up that component in a browser um, and just keep working on it. And we don't actually have um, anything like browser sync. I would just manually refresh the page, and that would be a mm-hmm. reasonable thing for us to add. Um, so I can do that, or I just fire up DevTools with my custom DevTools build. Um, and is the um, that way. your storybook replacement open source, or is it like internal? Uh, it's it's open source, yeah. So oh, what's the name? Um, 
Uh, well, you just have to find the DevTools front-end repository. Okay. Um, and there'll be a folder in there called front-end UI docs or something. Can't okay. quite remember. Um, I, I should say it's, it's very, very um, lightweight and rudimentary. Like it, it okay. doesn't have any of the sophisticated features Storybook has, but it has enough for, for us. Um, but yes, that, that is open source. Also, what interests me, your um, the TypeScript story, because um, I, I, I'm a little bit more, you know, bare metal than you are, because uh, what I'm doing, I'm using just straight ES6. And with Visual Studio Code, for me, you know, the code completion and refactoring capabilities are good enough, actually are amazing, I have to say. Yeah. Uh, but behind yeah. the scenes, uh, Visual Studio Code converts, of course, the JavaScript to TypeScript, but I don't care about that. I, I don't have to do any transpilation, no TSC, nothing. Um, what do you think about that? So uh, is it reasonable just to use ES6 or uh, do you need some specific TypeScript features? Um, I don't think you need them. I, I think I, I really like working mm -hmm. with TypeScript and I, I think it, it just adds that little layer on top of what VS Code yeah. and Simla can provide. Uh, we, we do pay a decent cost in running TypeScript though on all those files. So that, that is the exact trade-off, and, and we've picked the TypeScript side of the trade-off, and you've picked the JavaScript side of, of the trade-off. Um, I did have a side project where I was using JavaScript, but adding js.comments mm -hmm. to, to code, and TypeScript can support those. So you can say in a JavaScript comment, like at type mm -hmm. string or at type whatever. Mm -hmm. um, and that was quite a good experience because I didn't have to do any TypeScript bundling, mm -hmm. but VS Code understands all those exactly. annotations. Uh, and so that felt like a nice middle ground. The, the syntax for declaring types in comments is not as nice as being able to do it in the code itself. Mm -hmm. It's a little bit more clunky, that mm -hmm. has to be expected. Um, but I think that's a nice middle ground. Mm -hmm. So I think it's just one of those things where it really depends you as as a team, like what you mm -hmm. what you want to optimize for. It's a funny story or a funny story, interesting story in, in my world. So Java developers know far more patterns than JavaScript or use far more patterns than the JavaScript community does. So we have you no know, proxies, dynamic proxies, factories and decorators and interceptors and whatever. And the problem I have is whatever I told you right now is possible with um, with TypeScript, but impossible with JavaScript or harder to achieve with J JavaScript. And what I see in projects that, you know, the enterprise project, you know, they try to do the same Java code in TypeScript, which is very possible, but maybe not idiomatic in, in web and is going far too complex. Also, the funny story with the types, everyone would like to have the types. And then at one point of time in TypeScript, what I see a lot, they just use type any because they cannot, you know, manage the types anymore. So we have a strange, you know, uh, Frankenstein where we have a, a, some things which are type safe and the other times uh, where you suspect to be type safe is not type safe. So this is what I see yeah. a lot. So for me, it's better to say, okay, we are not type safe and uh, we write more tests. I would agree with that. I, I, in the moment you use any in TypeScript, you have effectively turned TypeScript off for that particular chunk yeah. of, of yeah. the code. So we, uh, I, I think there are a couple of any's floating around, but um, certainly we wouldn't allow any new code with any to, to land into the code base. Um, that would be sort of flagged. And I think we even have an ESLint rule that disables it. I much prefer for that using the unknown type mm -hmm. in TypeScript if you have to use something of that nature because at least it doesn't then just let you use that value as if it were anything. Uh, you have mm -hmm. to actually figure out what it is first. Um, but, but yeah, I, I too have used code bases where there's a lot of any's and it really really defeats the purpose. And I agree, at that point, you're better off not, not having it for sure. Mm -hmm. Last question. So uh, what is features you are really the most excited about you know in the recent work you are doing in DevTools which are uh, which we can expect or you can talk about or whatever just uh, promote a little bit you know the DevTools because I like them a lot 
I or actually I already like the previous edition of the performance analyzer, you know, with the where you can select, you know, the uh, the the hotspot and you get sync in all the graphs. So it was actually great work, great work already. So uh, what what happens to me right now with the new version? So what what are the the, the, the features you are working on? Yeah, so the new in is called performance insights. What I'm really excited mm-hmm. about with this one is, I think the the current panel is. Um, good but requires you to be quite familiar with it and its concepts to be able to get the most out of it It, it's not maybe the most intuitive beginner friendly thing to look at so what i really like about insights is you you load it up you you run your website and you literally on the right hand side get a column that says here's all the what we call insights so here's like for example a network request that blocked and slowed down rendering here's a layout shift that was bad and of course a bad experience here's your largest contentful paint metric score and by the way the reason this is slow is because of this request and because of this and that Um, and so I'm I'm really excited to hopefully allow people who maybe haven't tackled their web performance and aren't experts on it to have a more a nicer sort of entry point into okay let's begin to figure out if we can improve the the scores um, there so we have a long way to go the panel is an experiment so it's it's on by default you'll see it um, it has a little experimental icon on it. Um, there's plenty more to, to do there. It's far from finished. Uh, but I'm, I'm really, I really like the idea of lowering the bar to, to figuring out why your website's performance um, is, is or isn't sort of as you would like. Um, and that's really exciting for me. So, so if someone would like to check out you know, the power of web components, they should, they, they should you know, try out the, the newest performance insights, right? Yeah. And also there's another new panel called the Recorder panel. Mm-hmm. Um, which I haven't worked on personally, but it uh, lets you record like user flows on your website and, and rerun them. That's uh, also entirely web components driven. So any new panels that land into DevTools or big new UI features, they're almost certainly exclusively web components. Um, so I think that's really exciting. I mean, a lot of people say, well, you you can't do big complicated apps with web components. Or a lot of the conversations I have with people is, okay, web components are great for a tiny side project, once you get to a certain size, they don't do this, they don't do that, they, they break down. I, I don't think that's true. I think now we, we are beginning to be able to point to lots of projects, not just at, at Google and, and DevTools. It's like, no, no, you, you can achieve a lot with them. It just takes a little bit of, of thought. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, people enjoying new DevTools panels are using 100% web component-based So, record is actually interesting. So, it, it sounds almost to me like a parts of Cypress, right, where you can walk through the page, like automation almost. Yeah, so it will generate um, a Puppeteer script. So Puppeteer is the the mm-hmm. sort of browser automation um, li- library, and so it can generate a, a Puppeteer script that you can you can take and, and work with. So, for example, if you want to use right end to end tests using Puppeteer, you can kind of get a jump start by recording what you want to test in DevTools. That will give you a script you can copy and paste and save and and tweak as you need to tweak it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's more coming there as well I, I think like again that's another panel that's marked as an experiment because it's fairly new and we're we're actively seeking feedback uh, that's another thing i should say for the insights panel there's a feedback link there um we want to hear as much feedback as possible like we, we want to proactively solve mm-hmm. pain points that people have with debugging their web performance um mm-hmm. so we're trying to launch things as experiments so we can gather more feedback more quickly where people can find you on the internet and know if you have any links, I will also add, add them to show notes. Yeah, it's it's Jack underscore Franklin on, on Twitter and uh, jackfranklin.co.uk for the, the blog. 
mm-hmm. and those are really the best place to to find me. I think it was fun. It was really interesting to me that actually you're doing almost exactly the same what I'm doing, and you are no the uh, high end Google Chrome projects. I'm I'm in you know, boring enterprise projects, and we have <laughs> almost very very similar architectures with you know similar motivations coming from completely different background, and uh, yeah. Was really, I really enjoyed the conversation, actually. Yeah, same. No, it's great to talk it through. Thank you again for, for inviting me on. Thank you. Thanks.